Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to the Alonement Podcast, a podcast that celebrates alone time. It doesn't matter if you're single, in a relationship, or somewhere in between. Alonement means valuing that all-important me time. I'm your host, journalist Francesca Spector. Each week, I ask a new guest about the time they spend by themselves and why it matters. My guest this week is comedian John Robbins. There's an assumption that a lot of, if someone is sort of ranting and raving on stage, that that is somehow a sort of form of therapy or a, or a cathartic experience. And whilst Whilst it can be cathartic to an extent, it's the writing process more than the performance that is the catharsis. Because, you know, it's when you're writing about how you feel that you kind of, you tap into that vein and and you're able to vent. Whereas the performance is a, it is that, it's a performance. You know, when I, the last few Edinburgh shows I've done, the last few tour shows, people have said, oh, is this comedy, is therapy? And you kind of think, well, you don't understand how the process of making a stand-up show works. The writing is the therapy, and I do that on my own. John Robbins is a stand-up comedian and a presenter on television and radio. In 2017, he won the prestigious Edinburgh Comedy Award for his show, The Darkness of Robbins. Outside of stand-up comedy, John hosts a BBC Five Live podcast with his fellow comedian, Ellis James. He is also now something of a golf influencer, having launched a YouTube channel called Bad Golf last year, alongside yet another of his comedy friends, Alex Horn. John Robbins, welcome to the Alonement Podcast. How is your week going? Uh, pretty good. Um... I am just playing a lot of golf on my own, which I uh, really enjoy because golf is, uh, at this stage of the lockdown, has been uh, allowed back. So that was a, a big thing because that's what basically the only exercise I really get. And I hear you've taken up yoga as well. Yeah, I was, um, I think what started that was I, just in general lockdown life, if you're slightly more sedentary, I've just got like back problems and neck and shoulder problems that I've always had. And I was just sitting down one night and I was like, oh, my hip's starting to hurt. And then my shoulder hurt. And I thought, this is ridiculous. You're 38. You're like, imagine what you're going to be like when you're in your 60s or whatever. And 
I like over the past 20 years, I've been to lots of different physios and osteopaths, and they've all given me sort of exercises that I've never ever committed to. So I just thought I'd give it a go. So I just Googled complete beginners yoga and found um, Adrian, who's like the big YouTube yoga person. And, um, and then I started her 30 days of yoga. I, I found it very, really useful in terms of sort of just feeling a bit more centered, I guess. And her her sort of style of yoga isn't like aggressive. It's not like a challenge and it's not about sort of really about fitness or weight loss. It's about having a bit of time with yourself and just sort of tuning into your body. And I think if you've got like aches and pains, that's really useful to actually sort of spend some time trying to understand where they're coming from and what aggravates them. So I the, the like three things that were bugging me have now completely gone away after only like a month of doing it. So you're saving a lot on osteopath. Bills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so this is a podcast all about being alone and what that means. And obviously the word alone is a really loaded term. To you, when, when I say the word alone, what springs to mind? What does that mean? Um, well, I think for me, it's like a, it's a sort of positive word or certainly conjures up pleasant images for me. Um, I've always sort of being on my own in terms of like physically on my own in a place has always kind of been like my default setting. So I don't, I've never felt that anything was missing um, from that. Now that's not to say uh, my life isn't hugely enriched by being in a relationship and my friends and my social life and, you know, even, you know, things like golf with my friends or, or going to the pub or whatever, those are all benefits, but I don't necessarily feel a, a, like a lack when, when they're not there, as long as they're sort of on the horizon. Um, and there's just like so many different things contribute to that. So when I was young, my sister's quite a lot older than me. Uh, so the gap was probably enough that we were never really doing the same thing at the same age. So she would have gone to uni when I was about 11. So I think both of us, even though we're we're very close, would say that we sort of had uh, m- sim- more similar to like an only child childhood, um, just because we were at very different stages in different schools and stuff. And then when my sister moved out of the house, it was like my 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 bedroom became like my safe space like my from all various different like stresses in the world um so by very positive early associations with being on my own sort of I would you know as soon as that door was closed I would read and smoke out of the window and watch films and think a lot and then as I got older I sort of realized I was probably quite an introvert but with lots of extroverted tendencies in terms of what I like doing but sort of at my at my base level I was quite introverted so what I've come to realize that to mean is that I sort of recharge myself by being on my own whereas my girlfriend for example is very much an extrovert and she needs like people she needs stimulation she needs chats so she's we're just sort of coming out of lockdown, I guess now. 
so she's able to see friends and that's made such a huge difference to her just being able to go and talk for four hours in a park or um have someone round for dinner in her garden so that's very much part of what what sort of um gets her going gets her stimulated whereas i think i after a sort of a social event will very much need some time alone to kind of re recharge my batteries then i think like on top of that my job is a very solitary one a lot of the time um so when i was getting into stand up in my early 20s even though the actual event is quite a social one an awful lot of the touring and froing is on your own driving and also i was like living in shared houses in in bristol with people who weren't comics so you know i'd probably get up after they'd gone to work and i would get back after they'd gone to bed so that was quite strange especially i was in a shared house for a couple of years with seven other people and there would be days at a time when i didn't see anyone so again that sort of re- just reinforced coming back to you know your bedroom as like your kind of home and then university had a big impact on on me as well because that felt very much like not only now do i have my own room on my own but there's a bar below it and i'm with all my friends it was a you know really impactful experience um so i think all of those things uh contributed to like being on my own not not certainly not being a negative thing um and the last 4 years i've lived alone so it's sort of like everything in my life whether by accident or design has kind of led to me being quite comfortable in my own in my own head and my own sort of space mm. your girlfriend is coco fennel the fashion designer it's it's, um, it's fennel i'm afraid fennel oh my gosh i'm so sorry That's i do fine. know in the fashion how would you know there's just a <laughs> well, missing l I will correctly pronounce it from now on. So you were engaged last year and you still live by yourself. Do you think that that would change when you got married or do you think that you're going to do a sort of Helena Bonham Carter? And, um... <laughs> oh, no, we, we, def- we definitely will live together. It was uh, coronavirus has really kind of put a spanner in several logistical works. Um, and w- we're in a nice but a nice situation in that i i live outside of london she lives in london so when i was coming into london you know four or five times a week you know it'd be sort of three nights at hers and then back to mine at the weekend um for sort of a bit more of a sort of relaxed time together obviously lockdown kind of messed that up and also made you know any kind of house hunting or house selling impossible but um it's certainly i'm I'm not insane i wouldn't like say i actually like time on my own so uh we're going to get married but i'm going to live live on my own for the rest of our lives that would be unmanageable you know what it's a lot of married couples i think maybe 20 30 years in will say oh that actually sounds quite appealing but i think i think at the start then yeah it would probably seem definitely uh definitely against the tides but i think part of it is my house is just too small f- for two people to to th- there's just not enough space to have your own space so it's really nice for like a few days or even a week but 
and certainly you couldn't have a family here it's just not practical so it's sort of um it's just waiting for various stars to align when when you can afford to get a place that's big enough for 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 two people and i think that's something that like a lot of couples would probably enjoy and benefit from a house that was big enough to give them their own space within the house and i think that's when especially during lockdown can, things can get quite fractured is where you're sort of you don't have anywhere to just go and sit and stare at a wall for an hour and i think also it's very easy in relationships especially when you're spending an awful lot of time together and i know this from past relationships to kind of you get into a situation where you're always interpreting everything your partner says or does as a reflection on you and how they feel about you so you know if they if they just want some space you think oh what have i done what have i done wrong oh they're in a mood Whereas actually it's quite natural for someone to just need some some time on their own, whether it's, you know, going for a bath or just, you know, sitting in the garden or whatever. It doesn't necessarily mean you've done something wrong just because someone needs some space. And vice versa, if someone needs to talk, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're very needy. They just, they may get their sort of, get their kicks from chatting for ages. And And I think a lot of couples have found that um, you know, certainly during the self-isolation period of lockdown is finding that balance and that understanding that it's not always about you, you know. Mm. It sounds like you, as an introvert dating an extrovert, it sounds like you've really got down the difference and that that's something that you really respect and have learned to sort of navigate. Yeah, and I think... One of the many things that's incredible about my fiance and and our relationship is that there's just a total respect of what the other person wants to do. So there's never I don't think we've ever I don't think we've ever had an argument. Um really? Yeah, which some people might say is unhealthy. I mean, we've had like discussions about us and sort of the dynamic and the future and all that sort of thing and and you know and raised kind of concerns about stuff. But I always, my sort of idea of uh, a nightmare relationship is constantly being forced to go to weddings of people you don't know. And like that sort of, oh, what are we doing today kind of thing? You know, and there's that constant, what we, when are we next doing something? And I think if, so you know, if, if my partner wants to go and spend time with her mates or if I want to go and play golf on my own, there's no like, oh, but well, well what are we doing to to balance up the fact you've just done something on your own or you've done something that doesn't include me? And so many, there's a lot of couples I know where it's almost like a deal that if you do this thing, we have to do that thing. Whereas, you know, we just support each other in in whatever we want to do. And so when we come together, there's just so much to talk about and we really value that time. And, you know, I love hearing about the stuff she's been doing. She loves hearing about the stuff I've been doing. So, yeah, I think it's a really good balance. And because um, I think a, a successful relationship is allowing someone to be themselves as totally as you possibly can. And when, obviously when that, unless that, that self is a, a damaging or, 
problematic self but you know if you you just want someone to flourish so much if you if you care about them it's so true and I also love what you said about needing space and needing space not being an offensive thing to someone and I think that you know when you're in a secure relationship that can be but you know I know from past experience I know from you know seeing this play out the the phrase I need space can often be taken as an affront when actually it's it's just the expression of a need which I think we increasingly accepting that people do need that alone time yeah totally It it depends sort of what I think everyone on earth has always been has has been in a situation at some point where they've just needed some time alone but it's it's sort of getting out of that slightly codependent uh, dynamic where you see that as a judgment of something you've done or you see that as a as a reflection of the relationship whereas actually you know it's just a human need and it's you know I love my girlfriend just as much when I'm on my own as when I'm with her and and also she even though she's sort of more of an extroverted sort of social animal she also has times when she's just like I just want to spend the evening and on my own watching trashy tv and having a bath and just sort of recalibrating Mm, I love the term recalibrating that really I feel like spending time alone really does that do you think it's a coincidence that you're an introvert and Coco is more of an extrovert do you think that that's a good relationship formula or do you think it's just how it happened for you I don't know. It wasn't, you know, I don't think that really plays a factor in what attracts you to someone necessarily, because that's sort of more of a um, instinctive thing, I guess. But I do have to like watch myself because I think anyone who does spend time, uh, does spend a lot of time alone. When you then are in company, whether it's friends or family or your partner, it can take you a while to kind of warm warm up um, and to come out of that headspace. So if I'm like just living in my head constantly, say I'm at home for two days, when you're then with, say you're with a friend, it always makes me feel like the Amazon delivery person's knocked at the door. And that initially you're kind of just a bit like kind of startled. And so I have to be aware that that sort of warm up time can come across as coldness or rudeness. So, yeah, I I need to kind of check that that um, that when I'm sort of getting used to being social again, that I don't sort of come across as being distant or or kind of. it takes you a while to come out of your head voice, I find. Yeah. It's interesting hearing that insight as well, because I think people so often will assume that the way someone's acting is, you know, it, it is a reflection of them. And it's really not. Everyone just has their own. Everyone feels differently about socialising, especially now when we're all just sort of poking our heads out and, and getting back into the into the world. It can be quite overwhelming. So um, you know, as someone who has always seen alone time as a positive space, you also have spoken very openly about loneliness. Your 2017 comedy sketch, The Darkness of Robins, won the Edinburgh Comedy Award and was about your loneliness after your breakup with your fellow comedian and former girlfriend, Sarah Pascoe. What do you think turns alone time into loneliness? 
Um, well, I, I'm not, I don't. Uh, from I, from what I remember of the show, I I wouldn't say it was about loneliness. I would say it's about coming to terms with yourself, and I think I I very rarely felt lonely in my life. I felt lonely around other people sometimes. So I had times in my teenage years when we'd be out like uh, watching a band or a club or something and I would just suddenly have to go and it was probably between the ages of about like 17 and 20 I would just suddenly be like right I'm going and everyone would be like why the hell where's John why's he gone it's, the gig's great or whatever but I would I would suddenly feel quite self-conscious and weirdly like almost akin I guess to homesickness or slightly panicky and then sometimes when I'm in, when I've been in sort of big groups, I can feel quite self-conscious. But then, you know, some of the best times of my life have been uh, out with groups of friends. But I have tend to have a smaller group of very close friends as opposed to a huge group of like loads of different types of friends and acquaintances and and that and i've really missed uh sort of seeing them especially when you get to a certain stage in life where you're not just all sort of bumping into each other because you live in the same city and that kind of thing so i miss that and i regret my 20s being so focused on stand-up and i wish i had known that some of the things i was missing to do gigs you know would not return in my sort of 30s and whatever because people have families and move on. And so there are some things I missed out on that I regret, but I think when any relationship ends, you're suddenly, th- th- you're, you're just thrown into a new existence for a while and it takes a, a while to adjust to that. And a lot of that show, you know, the, sh- the show starts with the breakup. It's not really about the relationship. It's about how I dealt with or failed to deal with that and how I came to terms with, having to having to sort of have a relationship with myself again also unknown unbeknownst to me at the time i was probably starting to have um thyroid problems that have only now been sorted um and that so uh, that was, was an overactive thyroid so it meant that i was um more anxious and losing weight and it wasn't particularly severe at all in terms of the scale of how severe thyroid problems can be but in terms of like not getting sleep and constantly feeling like you're full of adrenaline and that translated into a lot of anxiety and a lot of self uh being very self-critical and I started to take medication for that in November and it has been a made a huge difference. Um, and my girlfriend was around, and I was we were make, I was cooking, and I I tried uh, to to deep fry something for the first time, but I don't have a deep fat fryer, so I just had a pan full of oil, and I dropped this tofu in, and I just had and I put the lid on, and I because I was guessing about how to do it. it obviously, the the heat went amazing; it just kind of exploded, and burning hot oil went all over the kitchen. And I was just like, oh, well, that's just an experiment. That's gone wrong. That was a, that was a bad idea. And she was like, what, 
why aren't you going apeshit yourself? Because <laughs> that's exactly the sort of situation where I would usually like lose it and be like, John, what well, you idiot? You knew that was a mistake. What the hell are you doing that for? You complete idiot. And that side of me has kind of gone to a lesser extent now that I've got my thyroid in check. So I would in- encourage anyone who has problems with sleep and anxiety uh, to, to get that blood test done because it's quite common and quite often undiagnosed but an awful lot of that side of my personality was was driving that show that um comedy show so um so yeah that's sort of what that show was about was sort of the horror of oneself and then I think an awful lot of my stand-up has been about that about how you relate to yourself and and sort of shame, which is a very private emotion, is a very lonely emotion as opposed to guilt, which is a sort of a public version of the same emotion. Um, so, you know, sh- shame is about something you've done and guilt is about someone knowing you've done it is a sort of very broad stroke. Um, so that... But then that show sort of took its toll in that I, I I took the next year off Edinburgh because I was just getting so self self reflective and everything was kind of this interior monologue that I was mining for comedy that just kind of wore me out a bit, um, and I and I had to sort of come out of that headspace, um, especially when I when I started that relationship with with Coco it's like you need to sort of come out of this agonizing stand-up headspace and you need to begin to enjoy a wonderful person and be a bit more open and 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 that kind of thing that said the next show I wrote started with a 15-minute story about buying a dehumidifier and going (laughs) crazy at myself but but I'm not sure that that I would I'm not sure I would write another show in that vein again I don't really know whether I'm still in that place. That's interesting. Yes. Um, I know that in one interview ahead of Hot Shame, which was your 2019 Edinburgh show, you, you said, I'm the problem with myself. Do you think that now you're changing with, you know, with, with your relationship with Coco and with having overcome your thyroid issues, do you think your comedy will change now? Yeah, I think it would. I mean, what you can't do, I don't think I could ever be someone who's pretending to be angry at themselves or I I couldn't like fake it if it wasn't there. And what I really enjoy about doing stand-up is when I'm telling those stories, I am reliving those emotions. So I think that makes it very authentic. Um, But it wouldn't be something that I would think right, I'm really, really happy now, so I need to sort of find something to annoy myself or I haven't got a new show in me. But I'm lucky in that with the radio show with Ellis and the podcast, I I have a weekly um, outlet for for sort of that creative side of me. So if I, I, you know, I'm not reliant on coming up with new stand-up material as, as frequently as I was before we started doing the radio. So the two can kind of, you know, if I take a year off from doing talk, from touring stand up, I can, I, st- I still have that stimulation in the radio show or, or me and Ellis might tour together or we might work on a project or I might write something. So 
I, I, there's a lot more balance in my life. Whereas for the first sort of 10 years of doing stand-up, it was like, right, what's the show? What's this year? Okay, that Edinburgh's done. You've got to start writing a new show. And that c- can be quite exhausting. Um, but now I feel there's more sort of balance in, in what I'm using my creative mind for. Mm. As you say about, you know, first 10 years of your comedy career, you were using material from your personal life as well as material you were sort of using those sort of very difficult experiences as comedy was that cathartic or was it the opposite um there's there's like a there's an assumption that a lot of comedy critics are especially bad for this but they assume that if someone is sort of ranting and raving on stage that that is somehow um a, a sort of form of therapy or a, or a cathartic experience. And whilst, whilst it can be cathartic to an extent, it's the writing process more than the performance that is the catharsis because, you know, it's when you're writing about how you feel that you kind of, you tap into that vein and, and you're able to vent. Whereas the performance is a, it is that it's a performance. And, you know, when I, the last few Edinburgh shows I've done, the last few tour shows, people have said, oh, is this comedy is therapy? And you kind of think, well, that you don't understand how the process of making a stand-up show works. The writing is the therapy. And I do that on my own. Um, and by the time it gets to you, it is entirely on my terms. And I think there's a slight assumption that when you read the phrase comedy is therapy, there's a self-indulgence. There's a there's an assumption of indulgence on the part of the performer. And whilst I'm sure there have been, you know, people who have been self-indulgent, I think more often than not, you, it, it's a sign of the success of the performance that they're thinking that. Because in in my most recent show or in Darkness of Robins, there's not a line of that show that I haven't looked at from every possible angle. I haven't tried in various tones of voice. I haven't put in different positions in the show. So just because it's just because it sounds like I'm saying it for the first time, doesn't mean I am. I'm probably, if you, I'm probably saying it for the hundredth time. Now that doesn't mean I'm bored of it or it doesn't mean anything, but it also doesn't mean I'm kind of using your time as a ticket buyer to experiment with getting stuff off my chest that all happens behind closed doors or it happens at very little gigs when you're sort of previewing or trying stuff out. Um, so I, 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 I just think that that phrase comedy is therapy or, or whatever is it's, it's on the one hand, a sign of the success of a performance or in some cases, a sign of just someone, yeah, being being indulgent if they haven't really prepared, um, but it's also a slight luck, lack of um, understanding on the behalf of like journalists or critics as to how how comedy works, um, how writing works. But you know, when I'm reading a novel that I really like, I think, how the hell did someone come up with this? This is amazing. It's so clever. And then you sort of think, well, they didn't come up with this in one go. They came up with first a really shit version of it, then a slightly less shit version of it, and then maybe eight sh- 
slightly less shitter versions down the line. They came up with a, a masterpiece. But when you're reading it, you think, well, they've just sat down and written this out word for word. But that's not how creativity works. So an awful lot of what you're doing is is done way before you get to see the thing. Yeah. Does the phrase kill your babies still apply to comedy as it does with writing? I don't know what that phrase means. Oh, it sounds horrible. Okay. Um, it, well, it, it does if you take it literally. Uh, and it is actually in, pro- in the process. So it's uh, that you have to anything that you often when you're really proud of a sentence and you're looking through something and you're editing it, you often have to kill that part because sometimes it's it's just not what works. And it's it's that ed- the editing process is that difficulty of having to, you know, Ah. Is out that you might have been proud of. Yeah, I've certainly had moments of that where, but then often I'm more of someone who will be like, no, keep your babies in, and if people don't go for it, then then that's just a little baby for you halfway through the show <laughs> to kind of keep yourself amused. Really? What if no one laughs at the baby during the previews? Well, sometimes the babies have to go. But there are definitely like bits I've kept in shows that are sort of little um, little bits for me. Like for for years, my shows would always have like a Philip Larkin line in, just as in in my speech. But it was never intended that anyone would like. There was nothing for anyone to get. It was just. It, but it was just for me, like a little sort of Easter egg. He's very good on loneliness and being alone he's got a great he's got a great poem called uh verse de societe where he says something like um he's, he's just bemoaning all of the invitations to um uh, events and how because he's older now he can't turn them down or is he'd rather there's a great line in it I'll, I'll find let me see if i can find it yeah, he says. Um, so he's been he's been <laughs> invited to a, like a dinner, and he says, "Funny how hard it is to be alone. I could spend half my evenings if I wanted, holding a glass of washing sherry, canted over to catch the drivel of some bitch who's read nothing but which. Just think of all the spare time that has flown straight into nothingness by being filled with forks and faces, rather than repaid under a lamp, hearing the noise of wind." and looking out to see the moon thinned to an air-sharpened blade. Oh. And then and then he says, um, later on he says, only the, young, only the young can be alone freely. The time is shorter now for company, and sitting by a lamp more often brings not peace, but other things. Beyond the light stand failure and remorse. Oh, Gosh. absolute belter. Easy guy for loneliness. So uh, are you going to be throwing that into your next comedy sketch? Um, no, because I don't get invited to enough things to have the problem to turn them down. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, well, everyone knows to look out for uh, Philip Larkin there when they listen to you in the future. And I'll definitely link that in the show notes as well. So moving forward to alonement, a word that I coined and have now trademarked actually um about the joy of being alone and the reason I created it was simply because there wasn't an antonym to loneliness now I know that for you alone time is instinctively a positive experience but what is what is the most fulfilling alone time for you well there's there's probably a point at which fulfilling can move into destructive and 
it, there have been times in my life where I've kind of almost tipped into the point of being reclusive. There are times when I've had to kind of draw myself back from a destructive alonement, I guess. And, you know, booze plays a part in that and has done over the years. And there have been periods when I've um, stopped drinking because it's a very easy thing to do when you're on your own. If that's the thing that, you know, if that's your thing, it could be drugs or it could be any number of, uh, I'm loath to use the term vices, but, you know, any any number of destructive habits. Um, there's a brilliant Raymond Carver poem called Luck, where he's talking about um, his parents having a party as a kid and he sort of stays up late and when he goes back into the house, there's there's no one there and he just starts drinking. And he says, um, uh, years later, I would, something like years later, I would still give up friends, love and starry skies for a house with no one coming home and all I could drink. And that's like such a powerful like alcoholics image Ooh. of just that total abandon and freedom and solitude to just drink yourself to death. So it's, which I'm pretty sure he did like an awful lot of those American writers. They all sort of died of alcoholism in their forties and fifties. So it's, but there is a sort of an attractive, there is an attractive side to that destructive image. Um, and I think if you're very comfortable with your own company, you have to be careful that it, it remains as productive as possible. And so throughout this lockdown, I've really had to keep an eye on, you know, how much I'm drinking, basically, because, you know, it gets to five o'clock in the afternoon and you've done you've done all your stuff for the day and you just think, what am I going to do for the next seven hours? You know, I can, yeah, I can watch a bit of Netflix and I can watch a film, but what on earth? Now there's someone in my driveway. Fuck you now. Um, I can never be alone. Even in this house, there are people outside <laughs> driving lawnmowers and with their bloody dogs barking. <laughs> um, but that, and like lockdown's been really interesting because as someone who is very happy with their own space and is often thinking about it, once you're suddenly given it a limitless amount of time on your own, you start to realize how awful that would be as a reality. You know, I haven't, um, I'd really like to go on holiday with my, with my girlfriend. I'd really like to meet my best friend for a pint. I, you know, I'm going on a, a trip, a golf trip in October to put uh, to Spain. And I just so hope it happens. And it's interesting to kind of sort of get your fantasy and then realize that like all fantasy when it's when it's made real it's actually pretty monstrous that's fascinating so you know your instinctive love of alone time would you say that's always been underpinned by those social connections that you maybe hadn't been as conscious of in terms of well I think it's like it's nice by contrast with being out and about and being busy. So like, I don't like really noisy places um, and I don't like big crowds, but that's not to say I've not 
some of the best things I've ever done haven't been loud and crowded, but I just need to be away from them to kind of look forward to them again and to get excited about it. So going to like a, a big music gig or, or whatever, or even going into London is like you have to be in a different, slightly different mindset and you get off the train and suddenly it's kind of, you know, stomach in chest out, let's do this. Um, and then I get home and I feel that sort of that city mentality, that sort of slightly more aggressive way of walking even, or that sort of slightly more focused um, way of being starts to fall away. But if you don't have that stimulation of the city or a big crowd or noises, then you don't necessarily notice the lack of it. So the lack of it becomes less of a pleasure. So I I think you need both and I'm and I'm certainly more aware of trying to have a healthy relationship with being when I'm alone as opposed to an unhealthy uh, alone time. Mm. That's really interesting. I actually hadn't thought about it like that in terms of, you know, once you once you love alone time too much, how can that spiral because I suppose I come at it as a natural extrovert from the premise of never having valued alone time before and and sort of having to learn it in a different way so why why if you are an extrovert who doesn't value alone time did you decide to start a podcast <laughs> about valuing alone time what where, what how what happened there so I, I live alone and it was the first time in my life I was living alone and you know I, I was very lucky to have all the social connections but that wasn't quite enough for me so I suppose I realized that if I wasn't able to spend any time alone that could lead to all sorts of issues like staying in relationships that I shouldn't do or you know saying yes to parties I didn't want to go to because being alone didn't have any value you know it's it's that it's the same balance just the other way around so that's really interesting so was it a choice was it your choice that you lived alone or is it circumstances that just led to it happening uh, well, I uh, I broke up with my boyfriend um, who was about to move in and had all but moved in. Um, so I suppose it was my choice, but it honestly felt like masochism at the time. For you, what what is it that makes alone time regenerative and restorative and, and healthy? Well, I have to I have to in a similar circumstance to you. So I'd been living with. Um, my uh, an ex-girlfriend for a couple of years we moved into a new place together and then she moved out so it wasn't a decision to live alone I wouldn't be living alone had sort of things not gone differently but I'm I, I guess I'm lucky in that this is actually the first time I've ever lived alone apart from sort of uni so it's not that I'm desperately seeking out the 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 situation of living on my own it just it just transpired that way and I had to be like I said I've had to sort of guard against that becoming a problem but certainly like when I when I was first on my own here especially the place I live is the average age is probably 70 it's sort of it's like I'm the youngest person in a, in a, I'm in a bizarre I was in a bizarre situation where I was like living in a bachelor pad in a in a sort of a historic Britain in bloom award-winning town where everyone's 
sort of clipping their roses and complaining about parking and stuff like that. So that was quite weird. And that felt that felt very difficult at the start. And I was certainly like in danger of of sort of spiraling down. And I and I immediately stopped drinking for a month when after that when I was like, oh you're in trouble here. Um because there's like six pubs near where I live. Um and obviously as a stand up comedian or radio presenter, you're your free time is is very different to other people's free time. So, you know, there's nothing to stop you going to the pub on a Monday night and, you know, getting hammered on your own. So you have to kind of, fuck is that? <laughs> Someone's now cutting tiles. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's next door, just cutting some tiles with a circular saw. I mean, this has been an incredible obstacle course of yeah. pigeons cars lawnmowers and now a circular saw um <laughs> so apologies if that is uh audible but these are the times we live in um so uh yeah i was quite proud of that i, I stopped drinking and then after that i i banned spirits from the house um and i i, I went through a period of like of forcing myself to agree to meet up with people and I think when you, so because I'm now, you know, an hour, an hour and a half out of London, it's very easy to go, oh, I just can't, I can't be asked to go all the way in. And I really had to kind of check myself and be like, no, because you know what you will do if you don't agree to meet up with that friend or do that gig even. And that you can really slip into like even stopping working because you think, do I really want to go all the way into London for 50 quid or whatever? And you think, no, it's forget about it's not the money side of this gig you've been offered it's it's the fact that you'll be doing something you'll be active and every time I ever agreed to do anything that I was tempted to not I I never regretted it and I was always felt very stimulated and I think what the hardest thing I've found about lockdown and I know that there are many millions of people who have struggled in far worse ways than I have um, and had their lives irrevocably changed but for me it's basically just been a lack of stimulation mm. and you don't that sort of creeps up on you and you think why am I waking up at four in the morning and why am I why am I sort of tired at two in the afternoon it's just you just don't have those bursts of adrenaline going through your body and I think that that makes you a bit tired yes even even not being able to do something like this you know for me I've really missed actually seeing guests face to face you know in a, in a sort of non-virtual setting it, it makes it so different uh getting that I guess that social social stimulus rather to balance with the alone time yeah I mean there's a, another great Philip Larkin poem about uh loneliness <laughs> called the importance of elsewhere and it's where he's on uh he's on holiday and he's talking about what what it means to be sort of foreign and what it means to be what it means to be a foreigner in a different country and what it means to be at home and he he says home is where nowhere else underwrites my existence and i think that's a re i think about that phrase a lot where you know when i'm here now sat in my living room like nothing else defines me this is where i'm kind of totally me and then when you step out of that situation, all these different things start to 
sort of define who you are. Um, and when you're out with people and when you're meeting people face to face and you're talking to people, what that does is it, it sort of, it makes it clear who you are by the contrast with who you're not. And without that stimulation, you do, I just kind of feel sometimes a bit lethargic and a bit, a bit sort of, um, uh, I guess despondent at times, but um, more sort of discombobulated really, because you need to, you need to define your role and who you are and what you do. Like I haven't been on stage for three months and you start to think, and someone offered me a gig in like August, and I was like, "Well, of course I can't do that. I'm not, I'm not a stand-up anymore, because I haven't had it reinforced that that's what I do." Then you think, "Well, I'll be terrible. It'll be awful." And whenever I've had breaks from comedy in the past, like going on holiday or whatever, you do come back and you think, "Oh, this is. I'm just going to die on my ass at this gig because I don't know what I'm doing." So it's only by doing it that you remember that's what you do. And you come off stage and you're like, "Oh, that was fine, wasn't it?" So obviously, I'm not. I haven't somehow lost the ability to do what I do, but also like none of our radio has been live since lockdown. So it's all been pre-recorded. So you start to think, well, 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 how do you do live radio? What does it, how does it work? What if we mess it up? What if I swear? And you think, well, obviously you won't because you never have done. You nearly have a few times, but without those reasons to tell you who you are and what you do, and also like without a family here or kids or without my girlfriend here all the time, you, you don't have those reminders of of your sort of the part you play in other people's lives, which I think is really important. Do you think it will change you long term or do you think that once you have that balance back, once normality resumes, whenever that is, do you think you'll you'll go back to how you were and, and, and value your alone time again? Well, no, because I, it's more for me. And I have other friends who f- who feel like this. It feels like the world is now living my life. So, and that is obviously, I don't mean the, the you know, the death and horror and grief. I don't mean the really serious side of it, but I mean the fact that I, I you know, for example, going to the supermarket now is for some people very anxiety inducing for me, it is a dream come true because there's less people in the supermarket. It's less busy. It's less stressful. It feels like the world has kind of been at my pace for a while. Um, There's less traffic. The start of lockdown was amazing. It was like when I, it was like being a kid again. I, I went, walked around just the town where I live and there were kids playing tennis in the street. You know, I haven't seen that since the 80s. I used to do that. That's what life should be like. It felt like a kind of pre-internet, pre, pre-everything age. Not pre-everything, but... And, yeah, like, public transport's quieter. And all the things that give some people anxiety in this world give other people um, a bit of relief, I think. And it would be nice if some of the, there does feel a gentler vibe. Um, Now that just may be where I happen to live. That might just be, you know, the the mile around my house. Other people I'm sure don't have that 
experience. You know, I cannot imagine what it's like to be homeschooling three kids in a flat with no garden. That would just, I, I, I salute every single person who's been giving everything they have to keep life normal for their, uh, or as normal as possible for their kids and family and, and, and people they're caring for. Um, but it does for me just through sheer luck and through who I am that there feels to be a slightly more gentle vibe that's aside from obviously social media and all the kind of awful stuff going on in America and around the world um but I hope we keep some of that considerate behavior and some of that thanks and some of that um some of that kindness that has that has certainly been um been increased during this crisis i think and i hope we we stick with that and i hope we continue to value essential workers and carers and the nhs and all all people in all sorts of frontline jobs well, I think that's a positive note to end on. Um, thank you so much. I really enjoyed speaking to you. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Sorry about all of the various noises. It'll probably now be silent for the next 24 hours. <laughs> and then as soon as I start to record something with Ellis, uh, uh, someone will start drilling a mine. Hey, it adds character. Yeah, it does. A bit of <laughs> bit of texture. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Alonement Podcast. If you liked this episode, please do rate, review or subscribe. It makes a big difference to helping other people find us. Until next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.